All righty. Hello, shalom, everybody. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Uh, my name is Eddie Chavez Calderon. I am uh, the campaign organizer for uh, Arizona um, Jews for Justice. I am so happy to uh, be joined here with an amazing uh, teacher who Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz has talked to me about during my own spiritual and activist journey. Um, I am really excited uh, based off of what's been happening, um, not only in the United States, but globally. And we've been seeing the rise in hate and racial tensions that have been building up. So this program truly is, is an important call for us. Um, and, and we're excited to, to be here. I have the great pleasure of introducing Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kisoy, who serves on the senior leadership team teaches Talmud and directs the social justice track at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, an open co-ed and non-denominational Jewish learning community where students encounter and grapple with classic texts and traditions of Judaism while exploring their relevance to today's most pressing issues. Rabbi Mish is engaged in a variety of social campaigns, especially in areas of, of women's and human rights and peace. Originally from Washington, D.C., beautiful place, uh, Rabbi Mish has a BA in the Brandeis and a PhD from the New York University. Her dissertation explored the, the courage manner in which the rabbis of the Talmud created a new criminal punishment system. Rabbi Mish, among with the first cohort of Orthodox female rabbis, was ordained in June 2015. She completed her studies at the at Beit Midrash Har El, sorry, uh, Har, uh, Har El, and received ordination from Rabbi Herl uh, Hefter and Rabbi Daniel uh, Spernberg. Rabbi Mish also serves as a director of admissions and social engagement and writes an online course for ICJW, International Council of Jewish Women. She has a PhD. Uh, the PhD in Talmud from NYU. I have the great honor of introducing Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammers Kasoy. Gosh, thank you, Eddie. That was a lot. Um, mm. I am holding for myself the sort of joy that I'm feeling to see some of my former students and friends and teachers, and as well as my parents. Um, and that's very joyous with the heaviness of the moment. Echa haita lezona kriya nemena maleti mishpat sedek yalinba atame batzchim. This is the prophecy of Yeshayahu of Isaiah. He said, "Alas, she has become a harlot." Speaking of Yerushalayim. A faithful city that was filled with justice, where righteousness dwelt, but now murderers. Um, it is a heavy time between the yard site, uh, the Jewish date of the death of Shlomo Teka last week, and the secular date of his death, June 30th. Um, coming next week. And uh, I find myself sitting a lot with Yerushalayim Shalmala and Yerushalayim Shalmata. 
the heavenly Jerusalem and the Jerusalem on earth. Um, and to really hold them both as, um, and the Ethiopian community, Jewish, com the Ethiopian Israeli community is an inspiration to me in that because of their ability to both hold Yerushalayim Shalmala and Yerushalayim Shalmatzah. Um, and they don't always line up precisely. And they don't, um, and it's not always one or the other precisely either. It's not fair to sort of box those things out. Um, we are, um, the Ethiopian Israeli community loves the state of Israel and I love the state of Israel. And I am have been living here for about half my life, as I was saying earlier, um, really, for me is a dream, a, f a fulfillment of a fantastic prophecy um, to be part of, to live in Yerushalayim. And yet um, we haven't completely realized all of the dreams that we have for Yerushalayim and there's much work still to be done. So we're gonna learn Torah tonight and it's gonna be learning, um, but uh, it's, I'm going to give it a little bit of a political and social context. It's part of uh, a series on anti-racism that's being run by Ori Litsetic, which is so blessed. And I know that the focus there is very much on what's happening in America. And I'm shifting it a little bit and also very anxious about the equations. Um, I was listening to... Uh, uh, um, Sorry, I'm a little emotional. I was listening to James Foreman, uh, and uh, who's a very prominent um, uh, scholar on racial justice in America, and he was talking about the complexity of weaponizing. Um, he himself writes about uh, black violence within the black community and the fear of. Um, and he names there, there's a sort of fear that if you um, say that you don't like everything that's happening in the black community, then those things will be weaponized, have been weaponized and are used against the black community. And um, when I heard him saying those things, you know, it both seemed, I it resonated so deeply with me also about what's happening in America. Um, and uh, uh, the, <laughs> in terms of anti, the anti-Israel and anti-Semitic um, sentiments, some of which come very much into Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't want to get bogged down in either of those two things, right? I want to just to say, we're gonna look at what's happening in Israel. Those things are complex and they both resonate with some of the things that are that we're facing in America and they're different than some of the things that are happening in America and we have to be able to hold both of those things at the same time and we have to be able to both identify with just causes in America um, which for me includes the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement and anti-racism in, in general for sure and also at the same time to really um, be able to name the unfortunate things that are happening here in Israel. Um, 
muted. Eddie, you should, do you, you hear should, me? Okay. Yes, you should be yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, so, um, <laughs> um, so uh, gosh, that was a very long introduction, uh, but I think unfortunately a necessary introduction. Uh, there's difficult things happening in this country and I don't wanna not name them because I'm afraid that they're gonna be weaponized by other people. I want myself as an Israeli to name those things and to go out and fight against those things. Um, and in this case, especially, especially to just learn Torah in the memory of Solomon Tekka. Um, I was in touch with Borky, Sol Solomon's father, um, in the context of planning this. And he was so pleased and honored that we are learning Torah in his memory. Um, and I'm going to just begin by sharing a little bit of his story. Um, Solomon Tekka made Aliyah as a young child at age 10. And um, he was living in Kiryat Chaim, which is a, a neighborhood in, in Haifa. Um, and he was very active in a youth uh, youth group, youth lounge that they had there in Kiryat Chaim, and he was right outside of that uh, of that lounge in the late afternoon, early evening, when he was when an officer whose name we don't know yet um, also was there in plain clothes with his with his wife and two children, and his wife spotted what he thought was Solomon getting being paid extortion money from small children. And the police officer went, approached that, approached the, uh, the Ethiopian youth uh, and accused them and asked them to, to empty their pockets, identifying himself as a plainclothes police officer. Um, and they perhaps didn't believe, and that's, a, that's, that's what we know. That's what we know for sure happened. And what we know happened afterwards was that Solomon, who was not yet 19, um, was killed uh, by a bullet that probably ricocheted after having been shot at the ground near Solomon's feet. Um, it's possible that Solomon had been drinking. It's possible that he had thrown rocks. It's possible that uh, many, many things are possible. Um, but one thing that we know for sure is that it was a great tragedy that Solomon was killed and that the officer has been indicted and is currently undergoing trial right now for what's in Hebrew, Grimat uh, Harigaba which was translated in the paper today as um, as negligent homicide, but I but I have a I, w I wonder whether it should have been translated as negligent manslaughter, uh, Grimat causing death by uh, negli um, negligently causing death. In any case, he's on trial now, and when that happened in on June thirtieth, uh, immediately there were major, major riots in Israel, which led to um, well over a hundred uh, arrests and, and, um, and dozens of injuries, both of police officers and, uh, and of Ethiopian Israelis, Israelis of Ethiopian descent. Um, 
and, uh, and a tremendous amount of anger. And at the time, also, Vorky, uh, Solomon, Solomon's family was saying, please, please calm down and don't, don't be violent. Um, he said, supported the protests and appealed for calm, saying, I want to thank the Israeli people for their support of us. I'm asking the demonstrators not to use violence, and I'm calling on the police to behave with restraint and tolerance. I can't have my son back, but we want there to be a fair trial and a just legal system. Let my son be the last, no more children be killed. So I think, so he, so they, their family is of course thrilled um, that this is the way that feels very appropriate to them to um, to mark his tragic death and to call for social change um, in, difficult, in difficult circumstances. So, okay, that that's the background. Um, I want to make sure that I I want to give you three units of Torah, three three episodes of Torah, but I want to just give a little bit. You may not have that much background. Um, the uh, Ethiopian community, there's probably there's about 120,000 uh, Jews of Ethiopian descent living in Israel right now. Uh, close to 40,000 40, of them were born in Israel themselves, um, but came in the 80s and 90s uh, in rescue operations. And there's something that's so uh, that's a true dream uh, for all of us. Uh, after thousands of years of dreaming, uh, the Ethiopian community hadn't been, by their own, there's some question about what, how the Ethiopian Jewish community, what their origins were, but um, the primary narrative that we'll be looking at today is that they were, um, that they were, uh, separated their descendants of the tribe of Dan that was exiled uh, with the Northern Kingdom in 721 BCE. So that's for 2,700 years. They have been dreaming of coming back to the land of Israel, and now they this is the, the fulfillment of that dream. Um, and for um, non-Ethiopian Israelis, this is a realization of the ingathering of the exiles um, of, of our prophet, of our readings of the prophets, and, and an incredibly bold attempt to, to say that, that race doesn't matter and that everyone can come back to Israel. So this has, this has been an incredible dream uh, and with tremendous risk and tremendous cost to the state of Israel, uh, the Ethiopian community made uh, a trek and had huge losses. Ten to ten to fifteen thousand people died making the walk from Ethiopia to Sudan, trying to get to Israel, um, where they were airlifted uh, to here. Um, and uh, and the Israelis, through bribes and covert operations, uh, which are all very exciting and themselves worthy of a great. Uh, and movies have been made about it um, to come back to Israel. So that's all very, very exciting. And yet, it, and that's the dream. That's your, that's your Shalim Shalmala. That's the higher Jerusalem. And yet there's also a lower Jerusalem, which is that it hasn't, wasn't everything. It didn't go as smoothly as we would have liked for it to go. The Ethiopian community um, experiences uh, poverty at some of the highest rates of 
of uh, Jewish community of communities in Israel, um, and they are incarcerated at higher levels than at than other groups of than any other group of Israelis, including Arabs. They are um, they tend to get harder sentences than other um, than other people who violate the same who have the same are convicted of the same crimes, they tend to get more difficult sentences. And so there's an understanding that the, that in some ways that resonates with many of the things that you're that you are fighting about in America and that need to be also addressed here that we were writing about last year and that we're continuing to fight for those things here. So um, so we're doing work on those things, but we have a ways to go. Uh, so that's what we've come together to sort of think about. Um, and I think I'll leave in the interest of time, put that aside and now just move into the Torah part. Um, what I would, what I'm, what my great interest is, is to just share with you how, how did it happen? This group of Jews who descend, who have been separated from the Jewish people and not in contact with the Jewish people from 721 BCE. And how it came to be that, you know, what, what kind of contact did they have? What makes them part of our same community? What does that look like to be part of our same community? So I'm, uh, so I'm gonna share a screen with you. I hope that you have the source sheet. Um, oh. Eddie, can you can you enable me for short for screen sharing, or make me the host again? Eddie, are you here? Yes, yes, <laughs> I am letting you do that right now. Okay, so I'm going to thank you. Um, I'm going to share uh, the did first. It, did it let you? Oh, did I do a bad job? No, did it? Uh, well, no. apparently it it let me. And oh no, it didn't let me. Host disabled. Please, please re-enable. Please re-enable me. Oh, I'm the host now. Okay, so let me try again. Screen. There you go. Share. Okay, I think I've succeeded. Hooray. Um, okay. So, scene one. Scene one on this whole screen takes place in uh, in the 16th century. Okay, from 1471 to 17, 1573, uh, the Radbaz, Rev. David Ibn Zimra, was the foremost authority, first in Spain, um, in Sfat, and in Egypt. Okay, so this is taking place because he's in Egypt. And in some ways, the uh, he is, that is to say, 720, we're, we're assuming 721, he led the Ethiopian community according to their own narrative, uh, although we're not, there's, there are multiple narratives, they were separated from the rest of the Jewish community. And, in and, fr and there's very, very little testimony to, inter to connection, so back and forth between uh, the, the rest of the Jewish people and the Ethiopian Jewish community. Um, very little actual connection between those two groups. And so, it, in it can it's actually terrifying but how how it happened that the the that there that the contact happened so this is what happened um here's the question 
You asked me to express my opinion about the person who purchased a Habashi slave from among those Jews who live in Ethiopia, Kush. How should I behave towards him? Does he go free after six years or not? And do all of the other laws of slaves apply or not? Okay, so this is a really complex question. The question is as follows. The Jewish people, the Bible leads out, lead, uh, lays out a system of slavery. And Kush, Ethiopia, in that time, was a place of many wars. And Egypt was north. And there were, and the, the Chabashi slave, Ethiopians were taken, taken as slaves in the context of that war and sold into captivity. And they were purchased by, um, by Jews in Egypt. And what's interesting is that as they're, as they're purchased, behold, they purchased this Jew in slavery and they just as a slave and they discover that they're Jewish now Jewish slaves and non-Jewish slaves have a different set of rules Jewish slaves only serve for six years while non-Jewish slaves serve for much longer and Jewish slaves have a whole set of rules uh, requirements that they have to be treated uh, they, if you, if you, the slave owner, eat steak, then the slave also has to eat slave, steak. Um, the Jewish slave. If you have a pillow, then the Jewish slave has to have a pillow. Uh, but those conditions don't apply equally to a non-Jewish slave, and that's a very complex question, right? Uh, but the um, that's the question that's being posed to the red buzz, and. Boy, what a zinger of an answer he gets. Because, of course, what he wanted to hear was, I don't know what he wanted to hear, but he, he had two, I assume he wanted to hear that, that he's your slave forever. Um, and at the very least, he didn't want to, uh, he was planning to have him for at least six years. And what the Ragbaz says is, the only kind of Hebrew slave is one, and I'm back here to the uh, to this place in this. The only kind of Hebrew slave is one who is sold by the court to repay what he stole, or someone who sells themselves. However, a person is not allowed to sell themselves unless they're extremely poor. Um, so you're not there. The uh, and even to repay a creditor, one may not sell oneself. So you can only sell yourself if you actually need food. Therefore, the person who purchased a, a Habashi slave, once it's become clear that they're a Jew, this purchase is nothing but the ransom of captives, not the purchase of a slave. Right? You thought that you were purchasing a slave, and what you were doing was a huge mitzvah. You had the mitzvah of ransoming captives. And that is an obligation that you have, a halachic obligation to save your Jewish brethren. When you redeem them from slavery, then they're redeemed. And that's what the, the text goes on to say, that if someone who sells themselves to a non-Jew, you have to, the, the next of kin is supposed to redeem them. And if not, um, the, if the relatives don't do it, then every Jew has to redeem him. And how much more so in this case, since the individual stepped up and redeemed him, the individual, the slave owner, as if to say, has merited doing this great, this great mitzvah, but the redeemed individual is not a slave at all, and they can go free at any time they want, and they're just a laborer. You can pay them, 
but you can't, um, you can pay them to do work for you, but, th but they're not slaves. So um, it's kind of a shocking, uh, uh, it's a little bit of a shocking response, uh, an amazing question. Uh, it tells so many things about the economic situation of the time. It tells you how far we go back in terms of uh, this dynamic of slaves being sold from Africa. And um, there are so many things that are disturbing about it. But the Red Boss's answer is so inspiring, this incredibly inspiring answer, which is, sorry. He's not a slave at all. You've done a big mitzvah, which is to redeem your your fellow Jew, and uh, and they and they're let off. They have to be let free. Uh, but then he goes on to ask another question, and the other que the next question he asks is, "Are we sure that they're really Jewish? Because they actually don't act like Jews in every way. They practice like the Karaites, who are." Sadducees and Baitos, which is Sadducees and Baitos, we can talk about what are the Karaites, we'll talk about Sadducees and Baitos are ancient sects from the Second Temple period, from the years, let's say, you know, from the 200 BCE to 200 CE. These were a group of people that were, um, that were the worst of the worst from a Jewish perspective, the Jewish villains. And um, the Karaites, on the other hand, are a sect that broke off from the Jewish people, uh, from, the ra from, from the rabbinate Jews in the eighth century. Um, and by the time that the Radbaz is writing, they were significant Jewish population, significant competition even in some ways, especially in Egypt. Uh, the Rambam, uh, who lived in the 12th century, until the Radbaz, who's living in the 16th century, during that time, Karaites were a major threat to the rabbinate way of life, and um, and they were sort of the main Jewish competitors, right? So the, the so the rab the rabbinate Jews, the rabbinic Jews, like that which we are today, sort of said about the Karaites, wait a minute, they're not really Jews. We don't really have to support them, and now we have to figure out: Are these Jews? These, pe these people who are the descendants of Don, who you've just taken as a slave, and now you have to release as a slave, you only have to release them if they're Jewish and not if they're Karaites. Once the question is, if they're Karaites. So then he goes on to say, wait a minute, but the Jews who come from the land of Kush are without a doubt from the tribe of Dan. And we're going to, this sentence becomes so important. It's being articulated in the 16th century. Those Jews who come from the land of Kush are without a doubt from the tribe of Dan, okay? Uh, they, they left in 721 BCE, and since they did not have sages that were masters of the tradition in their midst, they clung to the simple meaning of scriptures. They're not acting like Karaites because they broke off from rabbinic practice and they rejected the Talmud. Rather, they are key, they have some practices that look like Karaites because they never had the Talmud. The Talmud was composed in the year 600 CE. They, the Mishnah was composed in the year 200 CE, more than a thousand years after they were already exiled. So how were they supposed to know? Um, they, how are they supposed to know what's, that, that they're supposed to keep Purim, that they're supposed to um, say Shema, 
morning and night that they're supposed that they don't they their practices don't look like our practices because they never they weren't there to get to receive the chapter of the Talmud and the Mishnah and so if they would know about it then they would be part then they would be considered part of our Jewish people then they then they are uh, if they would be taught then they wouldn't reject the Talmud. If they only knew the right thing to do, they'd be act, they'd, they would act that way and therefore they're Jewish and they shouldn't be held responsible for their, mis their mistakes, so to speak, because their mistakes come from their having been uh, separated uh, for more than a thousand years before the, the Talmud was composed. It's not their fault. And therefore they are part of the Jewish people. Therefore we are supposed to redeem them and we have to bring them over um, to their way. Um, and then he raises a question about marrying them. Okay, I'm not gonna, I don't have time today to deal with the question of marrying them, although it looms huge. Okay, I've given you a very long source sheet so that you could go back and pick up all of these things uh, in general. But this question of whether you can marry them, because I'll just say a word can you marry? Because among the things that they don't have from the Talmud is the whole tractate on how to get married and even more important, the whole tractate on how to get divorced. And if you don't get divorced correctly and then you get married again, then you're committing adultery, right? So from a halachic perspective, this opens all up all sorts of, of dangerous halachic territory. Um, but in this chapter, we've got these are the, this is what we've got from this chapter. One, a mitzvah, the mitzvah of redeeming the captives. You thought you purchased a Jewish slave. There's no such thing as purchasing a Jewish slave. Two, you thought that, um, uh, you thought that they weren't practicing like you. It's not their fault that they're not practicing like you. They've been separated from us for close already then to a thousand years, I mean to 2,000 years then, more than 2,000 years, and therefore um, they can't be held responsible. We just have to teach them the ways of rabbinic Judaism so that they'll know how to behave and then, they'll be part, and then they're again part of our people. Okay, I'm gonna pause for a second to ask a couple questions because I realize this is so much information um, that it, some of it might be hard. Um, uh, so I am gonna stop share for a second and uh, if there's see if there are a couple questions that people need to ask just to not big questions but little questions to help you understand what's going on ha huh. i was clearer than i thought <laughs> okay so if everything's clear i'll keep going i'm going to share screen again um and bring you to uh to episode number two. Okay, that's it. that was the 16th century. The 16th century, that was it. We had in the 16th century, they were declared Jewish. Um, everything is good. Make sure to redeem them if they're your slaves. And then everyone went back to their own corners. It was before the days of WhatsApp and uh, the internet, and they didn't have contact with each other. Okay, there was basically from the from the 16 16th century until the 19th century there was very very little if just passing content connections between um the jews in ethiopia and the jews in europe in 
the rest of the Jews in the Western world and in the Eastern world. Okay, the the, the main strength, there's much contact between um, Jews in Turkey, in Libya, in Morocco, in Tunisia, in the, era, in the Arab world as a whole, and the Jews in Europe, there's back and forth between them all the time. They had, they're sending halachic letters back and forth to one another, and they are staying in, in a united tradition. But the Jews who are living in Ethiopia have very little um, to no contact with the Jewish people until actually the missionaries come along. Once the missionaries come along, um, that they start to like connect east and west a little bit more. Um, and as and that also brought the Ethiopian community in contact with the Jewish community a little bit more as Jews went back and forth. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm skipping many, there's so much important material in here. Um, but I, I just have a quick, quick question. Is it yes, only sir. true? Hello, so nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but is it this only true, halachic truva, I mean, um, that we know of regarding uh, Ethiopian Jewry from the time of Rabbinical, I mean, since Mishnah uh, from Gandhi. This is the halachic material that we know of during this time period. This is it. We have, they had some, he had some contact with the Bartanura, with whom you're familiar with. Um, there, there was some passing contact from tourists, from you know tourists. I don't say tourists, but there was some passing interactions. Uh, but there's not a lot. There's not halachic material. This is the halachic material, so everything hangs on this responsa. Uh, it's an incredibly important responsa. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and it, that's I mean, why. Just just, yeah. It doesn't happen in Jewish halacha. I mean, it doesn't happen in halacha that we have one shuba on something. Because there was very little contact, right? There weren't, yes. there weren't in contact with each other. There's two contact. There's two shuvas from the radvas. There's a, there's a whole set of material around the karaites, which is very important, um, but we don't have time to get into now. So I'm going to try to skirt around it as best I can. And then we come to the our next episode is in 19, in the 1970s and 80s. Um, even before, actually, in the in the beginning of the 20th century, with the as we're talking, planning the regathering of the exiles, um, and, the, and the and the state of Israel is becoming to come together, um, the the founders of the state are aware of the um, are aware of the Ethiopian community. There is a group of rabbinic Jews who have been spending time in. Uh, Ha, who have been spending time in the uh, um, uh, in Ethiopia and interacting with the rabbinic Jews um, and um, with Ethiopian Jews and educating them and sort of assessing, do they want to come to Israel? Are they, should we consider them Jews or should we not consider them Jews? And so in that time period, there's a whole, um, set of discussion should they be considered jews does that statement of the radba still hold true um and to what extent um you have to remember right there they this is 400 years have passed and um many of the uh there's also anthropologists involved what's the trying to figure out the descent of these people and and um 
remember that they don't have, I'll just say a few things. They don't have our, they don't have our, they don't have, they don't speak Hebrew. The, the Tanakh that they have does not have only our, does not have the same books that we have. They don't celebrate Purim. They don't celebrate Pesach. Uh, I mean, they don't, they celebrate Pesach. They don't celebrate Purim. They don't celebrate Hanukkah. Of course, those things you expect. Um, they, uh, in a, they don't say the Shema. Now, all of those things that we can imagine, they're t they have to fill it actually, but their tefillin is white. Um, crazy. Uh, so they, um, so many of the halachic positions there suggested that we should bring them over to Israel and convert them. But as soon as it was said, bring them over to Israel and convert them, not consider them legally Jewish, but just convert them in case. We'll treat them like Jews and that we'll bring them over to Israel, but we'll convert them just to make sure that they really are Jewish. That was the primary halachic position that was being argued in the in the before in the years the early years of the founding of the state um, and the and the and the decades after the founding of the state and because of that and, and this is where the politics comes in it can't the the founders of the state saw that um, they can't possibly have everybody in the they can't have everyone. Uh, bring in everyone at the same time from Morocco, from Yemen, from, uh, remember that the state of Israel, yeah, I'll, I'll, re, I'll tell you, for some of you may not know, that in the, the, the there were about 750,000 Jews living in the state of Israel in 1948. And over the course of the next 10 years, the state of Israel basically doubled its population of Jews, right? The, um, uh, that came, and many of them came from, uh, well, they came from all over. Many of them also came from Arab lands. So those, so in the attempt to absorb all of those things, the rabbis decided, the, the founders of the state decided to prioritize, and they decided not to prioritize the Ethiopian Jews, perhaps for the set, because they were told, probably, because they were, it was said um, that, uh, that they needed to be converted. So if they're not really Jewish, then let's, they decided to pick and choose. As many people do when they ask rabbis questions, they picked, they asked the question, should, um, you know, they, the answer was, do I have a response? Are they Jewish and do I have to bring them to Israel? And the answer was, you have to bring them to Israel, um, but you have to convert them. And they said, ah, so I guess we don't have, I guess they're not Jews and therefore they didn't bring them over. Um, and that was the situation until, um, until Ravavaja Yosef came. Okay, so Ravavaja Yosef was the uh, Rishon Letzion, the chief Sparty rabbi of uh, Israel um, it, it, from 1973 to 1983. Um, and he himself spent time in Egypt um, and what, I mean, was from Egypt and he had, was, part of a, I'm going to name a racial discrimination move issue in the early years that he was in Israel. I see that there's chat, but I don't, uh, I, I can't, um, I can't read it at the same time. So um, if, uh, Eddie, I invite you to read the chat and to interrupt me and ask any questions that are important that, that need to be done, right, that need to be answered now. 
for sure. It's it, no questions so far right now. Uh, Rabbi Shmuley just popped in to say sorry. He he uh, showed up late, um, but he's happy to be here and learning with you. Uh, and Lauren uh, made a comment that they do now in Ethiopia when you were talking about the Ethiopian Jews, but you're good so far. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those comments too. Um, so the, um, so Ravavaja himself, his motto was Lachzir Atarali Yoshna, to return the former glory of days of old. That is to say, he felt that what they call in Israel Ashkenormativity, that the Ashkenazi normative, the, the Europeans who were the people in power in the founding of the state in 1948, of course, and I think this is very you know, totally expected, they discriminated against their um, Jewish fellows who came later and who came from uh, the Arab world, which they perceived as primitive. They, the Europeans had a dream of creating a sort of Europe in the land of Israel. And as a result, there was some discrimination against the Sephardi community. And Ravavajik Yosef was so sensitive to that discrimination. And so he, he revisited this question and he revisited it with the perspective of um, of someone who had been himself a victim of discrimination, if that makes sense, right? He had he had sat in the chair of the person who was told, "You want if you want to be Jewish, you have to be Jewish my way," and um, and your Judaism isn't as good as our Judaism. And so he said, and he also had tremendous esteem for the Radbaz, who was right the chief rabbi of Egypt just 400 years earlier. And so he says, Ravavaja, um, who is also known for, in addition to the political piece, is a master at inclusivity. And that's part of why he's been so reclaimed in our day as a master um, in this way. He came around and said, um, of course the Radbaz is right. And the Radbaz established a a, um, a chazaka, a halachic presumption of kashrut on the Jews of Ethiopia in 1564. So if it was said in 1564 that the Jews of Ethiopia are Jewish, then in the year 1973, the Jews of Ethiopia are, of Ethiopia are still Jewish. He says here, um, well, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping all the way to page um, to page 10 on your source sheet. Me, who's now the who, who dares to come out against the entire community and to disqualify them and place a blemish in the sanctify. The presumption that they are of Jewish is of great weight. You Ashkenazim, right? I'm putting the word Ashkenazim. You guys don't have the right to come and tell them that they're not Jewish. I'm not going to let you do that to them. They we have a tradition that they're Jewish and they are Jewish and they therefore should be brought to Israel right now. Um, and, uh, uh, and they don't need to be converted. And based on that, 
millions. I mean, that was probably one of the most expensive responsa ever written in Jewish history, because as a result of that responsa, they rented, they immediately went out and rented planes to bring over um, those 80,000 Jews from Ethiopia. In the matter of days, they brought those Jews over and they brought them to Israel. Um, and it's been an amazing miracle. Uh, but the question, so his response, uh, Ravavaja is a tremendous hero in the Ethiopian community, but he said this, I wanna show one more thing that he said on page nine. Um, I came to the conclusion that the Falashans are the descendants of the tribe of Israel that went south to Ethiopia. And there's no doubt that the sages mentioned um, above who established uh, who established that they were from the tribe of Dan. They researched and concluded based on fully reliable testimony. Oh, I'm sorry. And now that the Falashas have turned to seek me to join with their brethren of the house of Israel in the spirit of Torah and Halacha, oral and written Torah without any hesitation to fulfill the Holy Torah and the commandments according to the sages, now we have to hurry up and bring them to Israel. But this is, this sentence now that they are coming to join us um, and in the spirit of halacha, oral and written, without any hesitation to fulfill the commandments according to the sages, that's the condition in which they could bring. So we have to bring them to the land, rush them to Israel and educate them and tell them, Shavu banim gulam, this is a that the children should return to their borders um, and, and, they, and they should be educated in religious schools. That is to say, we're gonna turn them into Jews like us um, and make them, their, their acceptance is conditional. Even by Ravavaja, who was such a hero to the Ethiopian community, his acceptance of them is conditional on their agreeing to be Jewish in the way that Ravavaja sees, or as rabbinic Jews see as the way of being Jewish. And I think that that is, you know, we could stop there and have a discussion because I think that that's such a, a very powerful um, question of what's appropriate, but I want to briefly share the next section with you and then I will stop, which is what happens in episode number three, because the question is, how does it feel to be brought to the land of Israel under the that under condition that and where many of the Ethiopian of the many of the halachic authorities um, say you have to convert just in case and prove that you're really really Jewish and be Jewish like us, let go of your old ways, and that was very, very hard on the Ethiopian community. And perhaps as part of what, now we have to remember there, eight, there are um, six million Jews in the land of Israel, and there's 100,000 Jews, 120,000 Jews of Ethiopian descent. So you have to think about what would it be like to bring in another tradition, right? Are you allowed to have a tradition that is so different? What would that do to our Jewish people? And yet at the same time, when you tell to a group of people that they have to be, that their way is wrong and they have to give it up, it's also very difficult. And so we have a little bit of a dilemma. And that is the dilemma which Rav Sharon Shalom, who 
is a Jew of Ethiopian descent who himself made Aliyah um, together with his family. Um, and he witnessed the pain to the Ethiopian community, what that, what that was and what he sees as the problems, the social problems that emerged from that kind of what he thinks of as a religious discrimination. And he tries to suggest another paradigm. And that paradigm is one which allows for unity without uniformity. And he suggests some pretty big um, some pretty big accommodations. He expects the Ethiopian community to, you know, he and he he writes a at least in the initial he got rabbinic smicha um, from the rabbanut, um, but in his book he goes through halacha by halacha each practice of the Ethiopian community and says what you know what should we hold on to and what should we not hold on to. One of the things he suggests is perhaps Jews should be allowed Ethiopian. Jews, one of their customs is to come into Shul on Shabbos, um, and it says in the Torah, Lo tirad panai reikam, don't come and see me empty-handed. And so their minhag, their custom is to bring a financial donation to pass the plate in Shul on Shabbos. And Rav Sharon Shalom says, you know, that's, it's only a rabbinic prohibition. Maybe we should accommodate that custom of theirs because we want to honor their tradition as well. And for me, for you guys, I, I I imagine that some of us are thinking, are you serious? Are we going to let that? The Ethiopian community, as if we're the ones that to let, right? But you hear the power commute, the power um, dilemma here, and how complex that gets to be, um, and how do we both absorb? A relatively small community of 120, 120,000 Jews from Ethiopia that come from such a different world, um, that they do want to join the general Jewish population. On the other hand, for their own dignity, for their own cultural pride, need to hold on to their own traditions. And so Rav Sharon Shalom comes and sort of kicks back and says, stop telling us to be like you. Let us hold on to our own traditions um, and give our traditions the place of pride that they truly deserve. Uh, so three episodes, if you will. Okay. And each of them tremendous in their and and shocking and interesting in its own way. Um, episode one, a story, the Radbaz, David Ibn Zimra, a story of mutual responsibility, a story of demand that we are be brothers, of Don Lekafskut, of assuming best intentions, assuming that the Ethiopian community um, are not, are just mistaken, and that it's not their fault that they haven't been part of the Jewish tradition, and therefore they should be included in the Jewish tradition, and and that's a story of inclusivity. And then in episode number two, um, the story of Ravavaja um, in the modern state of Israel, where, which has a balance of both cultural tolerance and imperialism at the same time. He's got a sort of conditional acceptance on, of the Ethiopian community. They should come and be like us. 
And at the same time, he also says we have to recognize them as Jews as they are right now and not humiliate them by forcing them to convert. Um, although he more or less is overruled on that, or in many ways is overruled on that still to this day. And then finally in episode number three, um, Sharon Shalom, and that's where the Ethiopian community um, steps up themselves and themselves are empowered to claim for themselves uh, the honoring of their own tradition. Um, for me, the takeaway is the story of cultural dignity and, and its challenges. The manifest, the way identity politics manifest themselves in halakha, the way power and privilege also finds its way into halakha, um, and that that's a really complex story. And then all along that is a very genuine, and I did, I wasn't able to really uh, give it, I wasn't really able to give anything, it's full due, to really think about what does it mean to have unity without uniformity? How much diversity of practice can a community in, include and still be a single community? And therefore, perhaps um, that demand of, uh, of the rabbinic movement that you have to come be Jewish our way um, is perhaps entitled, or who does get to decide who is who, who gets to decide who gets to decide? Um, but I want to close with what I think is ultimately truly, truly shared by the Ethiopian community. I mean, I think the Ethiopian Jewish community in Israel has largely adopted rabbinic Judaism in many, many ways. And, um, and uh, but there's still much we can do to to hold their culture up and embrace them and, and encourage and allow them to feel the cultural pride that they deserve to feel in surviving in that isolated way for 2,700 years. And during that entire 2,700 years, they never, although avda tikvatenu, right? They, they, they never lost their hope, liot amchovshi baratzenu. They held on in the deepest, deepest way to be a free people um, in the land of Israel. Their dream was always to come back to this Kiryah Nimana, this faithful city, um, a place where tzedek, where mish, um, Mishpat Sedek Yalimba, a place where justice and righteousness can dwell in it. And that shared dream of Turning to Jerusalem that we've all shared together um, is being realized in our day. And now the next step we need to take is to make sure that it is really a place of Mishpat Tzedek. Um, I thank you and I've left a few minutes early so that there's room for a little bit of questions and I understand that people will have to slip off but I can stay a little bit longer and take questions um, if people are interested. I, um, I wanna just again say, uh, that this learning should be uh, a blessing to the memory of Solomon Teka, Zichonole Vacha, and that we should have, uh, that his family should have much comfort and that our whole country should heal from this very difficult, uh, and really the whole world should heal from the very difficult things that we face. Um, thank you very much.
Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Mish. Um, I, I truly feel that we felt your your emotion and your passion in, in these troubling times. Um, it's it's been a really difficult time for for myself, uh, having a, a black partner and seeing what's been happening in in the United States. Um, my partner is also a black Israeli um, of Israeli descent. So it's been really difficult, and we've been watching uh, recently that the Vice video came out of um, uh, addressing um, police brutality, not only in the United States, but in, in Israel. And it has really opened not only my, my own emotions, but the emotions of, of a lot of, of different people who are experiencing the incredible rise of hate. Uh, I wanna ask you one quick question before you, you go. Um, how do you address uh, folks using what's happening in Israel as an anti-Semitic attack, where they're saying, see, this is the police brutality that's happening in Israel. It's the same thing that's happening here. And, it's, and they, they morph it into an uh, anti-Semitic attack. How do you uh, challenge that? I think we have to fight anti-Semitism as if there were no racism, and we have to fight, fight racism as if there's no anti-Semitism. Uh, it's clear to me that uh, there's no justification for anti-Semitism and that the situation in Israel is the situation in Israel, the situation in America is the situation in America. I don't want to cover up the problems that are happening here in Israel uh, because I'm afraid that people will weaponize them. I want to try to do the best I can to make this country uh, country of justice, um, the same as I want America to. Uh, I know that there will be people in both, in both camps that are going to misuse, um, but I'm afraid that those people are perhaps going to uh, foment hatred no matter what we do. So I think that educating and, uh, and engaging in dialogue is the most important thing that we can do. Um, that's, I say that with humility sitting from where I'm sitting because I'm not in the thick of, uh, I, I, and I see some people give it, you know, I, I, like, I know that I'm not in the thick of it in America, so I don't really know what that's like. Um, so uh, with much humility. Um, Thank you. I, my, I live in Israel, so I have to be worried about what's happening here, and I certainly can't silence myself here for fear of what they'll say in America. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate this. Uh, a huge shout out to the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable who is making all of these talks possible. We appreciate everybody for joining us. Uh, thank you again, Rabbi Mish. I will, thank um, you. I'm closing the Wait, video. Can I, can I, before you do, I want to say one more thing, which is to just to say I have the social justice track at Pardes. Um, uh, and we are offering now scholarships um, to come and study at Pardes for the year. It's a relatively safe place to be right now. Um, right back. now, I can't have no idea what will be. And I, uh, I invite you. you to come back, Sarah, come you. back and study at Pardes. Um, we would love to have you. So if you're interested in uh, investigating scholarships uh, and living stipends, please do be in touch with me. My, net, my, my email's on the uh, source sheet. Blessings, everybody. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mish. Thank you, Thank Eddie. You. Bye.